we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm executive director of the center and host of the podcast. And we are again in El Paso and have a special guest to interview, David Hamm, a retired Border Patrol officer and a moving force in the Border Patrol Museum, the National Border Patrol Museum in El Paso. And I thought it would be good to talk to David a little bit about his background, about what the museum is about, and maybe some thoughts on the immigration issue or border control issue in general, to the extent he feels free to talk about that. So uh, thanks for joining us, uh, David. Glad to be here. And if you could just start, what's your background? You were in the Border Patrol, how long, what kind of things did you do? I came in the Border Patrol in 1972. I had been in Vietnam, got home Christmas Eve, 1969, and then applied for the Border Patrol in 1970 and didn't come in until 72, primarily because President Nixon froze all federal hiring. I had already been selected. So I didn't come in until 70, April 72. Why'd you pick Border Patrol? Had you grown up here on the, on the border somewhere? Uh, no, I grew up in the oil fields of West Texas, but I had an uncle and a great uncle who were in the Border Patrol. I see. My great uncle was a chief in several sectors in the northern border. My uncle was a Border Patrol agent in McAllen and then got into INS investigations. So I had a, a background in Border Patrol. I had originally wanted to be a teacher and a football coach. I got married and my wife got pregnant and paid that I was looking at was $6,600 for a teacher. And I think at that time was $8,900 for a Border Patrol agent. But you got overtime, which brought it up to about 12000 a year. So that sounded good to me. So I finally got selected and was assigned to Columbus, New Mexico, which I knew something about because I had done a term paper on Pancho Villa. <laughs> but my wife at the time had never been outside of Dallas except to go to school in North Texas in Denton. So when we came to Columbus, it was quite a culture shock for her. And you were living in Columbus, not we just working We were scheduled there. to live in Columbus, but as it was, she was pregnant. She was having a difficult pregnancy. So we got to live in Deming, which is about 30 miles north of Columbus. I had to drive to Columbus every day to work, but at least I didn't have to live in Columbus yeah, because for sure. there was a little government housing there, but not much else. So this is the 70s. So how long, uh, what, what else did you do in the Border Patrol after Columbus? They closed the Columbus station because the patrol agent in charge had a heart attack and died. So they moved it to Deming, New Mexico in about 1974, I think. And we stayed there until 1987. Oh, wow. We enjoyed living there. We raised our kids there. I got involved in the anti-smuggling portion, which is a long story, but decided I wanted to be an anti-smuggling agent. 
But in order to do that, I had to transfer to El Paso. I was detailed as an anti-smuggling agent in Deming for two years. And then came over to El Paso as a prosecution supervisor. We took alien smuggling prosecution cases and presented them in all kinds of prosecution cases. I did that for a year and then transferred over to ASU as a special agent. That's anti-smuggling. Anti-smuggling, right. yes. And after three years, I was promoted to supervisory special agent in charge. And I did that until 1996. And I uh, applied for an assistant chief job. And much to my surprise, I got the job. <laughs> I did not even have a uniform by that time because I'd been in ASU for... Oh, so you were plain clothes all that time. I was plain clothes all Like a detective, basically. Yes. We investigated alien smuggling cases. Right, right. Large-scale alien smuggling cases. We had the first land-based Chinese alien smuggling case. Hmm. We did a lot of good stuff. I really enjoyed that part of the work. And so this is all still the old INS because DHS hadn't been created yet. Right. So I became an assistant chief with the hope of being able to supervise the anti-smuggling unit. But... The chief had other ideas, so I took over different programs. And I did that until 2003 when uh, we went under DHS. Mm -hmm. I had been in 31 years. I was very happy with what I was doing, but my wife told me, basically, you're working for free. You reached the top of your grade. And I did not particularly like the way that DHS was where they're reorganizing, reorganizing things, pulling them out of justice and all of that. Yeah. Right. So I decided rather than retire and be unhappy, I'd rather retire and be happy. So <laughs> I retired, played golf for a year, and then started doing consulting work with a company called Global Technology Management. We were a subcontractor to Raytheon, and we worked on two different projects for them. I did that for about six years. Really was interesting to see different business processes like these people use, something totally different from the way the government worked. Then my wife said, you know, you're gone too much. You need to stay at home. So it already been voted as president of the Board of Governors for the museum. We have two. So the museum already existed. Yes. We've, yeah. we've been in existence since 1985 and here in the location on Trans Mountain since 1994. And so when did you get involved at all in the museum? You said you were on the Board of Governors. When did that stuff happen? In 2008. Actually, when I was an assistant chief, it was part of our responsibility to oh, really? attend the meetings, monthly mm -hmm. meetings. And so after I retired, I still started going. And this is a true story. I was attending a meeting, went to the bathroom, came back, and I was- You've been elected. I've been voted president of the And this is 2008. <laughs> And I've been president ever since. President of the museum. Ever since, right. yes. And was the current new building already then, or was, was yes, that later? The, okay. the new building. Which is what we're in now, just right, for listeners. It was in 1994. Okay. We moved out here. Cost about $340,000. When we unlocked the front door, it was paid for. Wow. So we got uh, through some corporate donations and private donations. That's how we paid for it. What's the uh, web address for the uh, museum? It's uh, BorderPatrolMuseum.com. Okay, well, good. You can buy Border Patrol swag, et cetera. Yes, we have a gift yeah. shop, and please feel free to buy anything that's in there. How's it gone? How's the museum gone since you've been, what is it now, 13 years you've been president of it? 13 years. It's been a struggle, to be honest with you. We're not federally funded, which a lot of people think we are. The lady that was our director, Brenda Tisdale, had been here a long time. Mm -hmm. She passed away, and... 
we couldn't get anybody to take the job, so I took the job as the director. So you're president and like, director. Of, and I'm director. my own boss, okay. basically. Okay, there you go. <laughs> so, which is a good deal. Right. But we have a national board, too. We have two boards that govern the museum. The local board, the Board of Governors, mm-hmm. is comprised of mostly local people here in El Paso. Retired agents? Yes, retired yeah. agents. We do have some active duty okay. board patrol agents on the board. The national board is composed of primarily retired people from all over the nation. Okay. Most of them are retired chiefs and assistant chiefs or deputy chiefs. We do have a few civilians on that board also. And they set the general direction. I, I create the budget, and uh, they approve the budget and kind of give overall direction of the museum. What kind of relationship do you have with the Border Patrol? I mean, obviously, you're not formally part of it. In other words, there's no, you're not part of the government, but do you have a good relationship yes, with Border Patrol? We have, a, I think, a pretty good relationship. There is a public law that was passed in 1993 that was sponsored by Alan Simpson and, and Ted Kennedy that authorized the Border Patrol to provide the Border Patrol Museum artifacts, archival material, exhibits, and provide technical expertise which is kind of unique. It is a public law. And it also provided it should we leave the Department of Justice and go under another department because we've been under the Department of Justice since 1940. We right. started in 1924 under the Department of Labor, and now we're under the Department of Homeland Security. Right. Where the law still applies to both, to DHS also. Okay. And after much review by the government attorneys who weren't aware of this, as was the national chief, they said, yeah, you can do this. So we started now to get a lot more stuff than we were getting. What kind of things are you getting from Border Patrol? A lot of old equipment, documents, and operational memos. Oh, okay. One of the big contributors to our museum and a lot of our historical archives was Harlan Carter. Harlan Carter had quite a few titles, but he was. Chief of the Border Patrol, he was district director and head of NRA after he national oh, really? was, yeah. Okay. Interesting. He must have saved everything that he did going <laughs> back to the nineteen early thirties. Wow. And he saved everything, a lot of it on onion skins. Oh my gosh. Which is a lot that of thin, transparent yes. little paper old paper. Right. Yeah. I was telling some of the folks, they didn't even know what onion skins yeah, were. Yeah, right. I'm sure kids they don't know what rotary phones are, they wouldn't <laughs> exactly. know what onion skins are. So you have a lot of those kind of papers here. Yes, we have. And do researchers use them? Because we're here in the archive room taping this interview, and I see file cabinets full, I assume, of various papers. We have probably the best archival collection on the Border Patrol outside of uh, the National Archives. Interesting. And we get a lot of research requests every year. From, like, are these graduate students? or Graduate students, authors. There's a book called Migra that was written which is not probably my favorite book, but she did a lot of research here. Okay. So a lot of people have done at various levels. So any interesting actual objects that the Border Patrol has donated? Because I saw outside the museum, there's, a, there's an old helicopter and an old Border Patrol boat. Right. That was from the Border Patrol. The helicopter outside, we have one inside also. Okay. An 086. And we just got that one outside in 2019. Hmm. And we made the decision not to tie the rotor blades down, and we had what we believe it was a microburst out here during a storm. Yeah. And the blades knocked the tail rotor off, and oh, that's why. Geez. 
We've located another tail boom. It's been repainted. We're just trying to find the time to get to it restored. Reta- basically, restored, yeah. Right. yeah. So, what other interesting things exhibits are there that visitors could see in the border patrol? Museum? We have a motorized hang glider hmm. that was apprehended in Lordsburg, New Mexico. So about, used by a smuggler. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Had about two hundred and fifty pounds of marijuana in the Stokes basket. You don't have that here. We have the Stokes basket, <laughs> but not the marijuana. <laughs> right. No. We have various vehicles that were used to smuggle aliens, homemade go-karts and motorcycles. Mm-hmm. We have a raft that was used by some Cuban folks that left Cuba and made it to one of the Keys in South Florida. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the original displays that we had, we're probably going to have to pull it off the floor and, and recondition it because it's been here since 85. Did you work with any kind of museum planning outfit? In other words, how do you sort of array because it looks like a real museum there's all the exhibits and there's little explanations uh, did you guys just kind of make that up on your own and or? well i didn't even know how to spell museum when i <laughs> took this job so one of the comments that i had from a gentleman that that i have a lot of respect for who started the border patrol foundation mm-hmm. which is separate from you the museum which is fe- separate from us we work a lot of events together. Okay. But he said, you know, this looks more like a warehouse than a museum. I said, right. you've got all this stuff, but it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. So I, I agreed with him. So I went to the Texas Ranger Museum in Waco, Texas, mm-hmm. and met a man there named Byron Johnson, who's the executive director. And what a, what a godsend that was. He taught me everything that I know about museums. So he was generous with his help? He, I mean, he, was, he, was he came out and talked to the local board. We took the local board to the museum, and they said, yeah, we need to, we need to change. Mm-hmm. So in 2014, we started tearing everything up. We closed the museum for about a month, and we started rebuilding. We finished in June of—this was November of 2014. We finished in, in April of 2015. Mm-hmm. The Fraternal Order of Retired Border Patrol Officers had their yearly convention here at that time. So we opened up for that convention, and the praise that we received was it really made it worthwhile. We've got a lot more to do. You know, small museums like ours, money is the biggest issue. We've had some things happen. We had an employee steal a large amount of money from us, which led us to revamp a lot of things. And we've recovered from that, but then COVID happened and we were closed like nine months out of 2020. The only way we were able to survive is we got two of the PPP loans. Oh, okay. So we're starting to recover from that, but... When did you reopen? Reopened December of 2020. 2020, yeah. We've been reopened ever since. How much uh, traffic do you get here? How many people come by? Before COVID, we were averaging about twenty two to 25,000 a year. Okay. So look, 2000 a month, maybe. I mean, yeah, that's, about that's a pretty fair number because you're not in downtown no. El Paso. I mean, it's not that far out, but it's not right downtown. Right. We like it out here, probably. Yeah. Uh, and, and we have a great museum next door, the Archaeology Museum. We work very closely with them. But it's not connected with you guys. It's, it's not just con- next door. It's a city door. museum. Okay. We're a non city. Mm-hmm. But in order to get this lease, we lease this land at a very cheap price. Mm hmm. We had to abide by the rules they have for the other museums. I see. That's why we're open Tuesday through Saturday mm-hmm. from 9 to 5, because that's what the other museums are open. Right. So we have a very good relationship with them. Since COVID, 
we started picking back up a little bit. I think the biggest number that we've had, I believe we had 181 people one day. Okay. But we averaged probably right now around, during non-school seasons, probably 70, 80 people a day. So do school groups come in during school? We get a lot of school groups. Okay, interesting. Uh, Like field trips, basically. Field trips, yes. What's the admissions charge? It's free. Okay. It's free. You just make donation if you Make a donation, yeah. And you all are a... Nonprofit, so we're a five hundred one c three. So donations would be tax deductible. Yes, all tax deductible. So didn't during the in twenty twenty when all of that ruckus was happening and the BLM riots and all the rest of it, didn't you have some kind of problems here in the museum? In February of twenty nineteen, we had. Oh, okay, a, this was before that. Yeah, when they had the uh, first surge started under President Trump, and they had all the big groups coming in and surrendering. And they had uh, those, a couple of kids, or one kid down in Lordsburg, down the Boot Hill. Boot Hill of New Mexico. Yeah, and and then near Alamogordo, another kid passed away. Mm -hmm. Both of them had been sick. Right. And the agents did all they could do. Of course. And in Boot Hill of New Mexico, you're hours from the hospital. Mm -hmm. And who would drop off a group in the middle of nowhere anyway? Yeah. But anyway, they protested that. We had about almost 100 people come in and demonstrate. In the museum? In the museum. They put stickers all over the museum with the pictures of these kids. The problem with that is they used industrial-type glue. Yeah. And when we went to remove these things and they put them on plexiglass and other, they put a bunch of stickers in our memorial room where they have the pictures of the fallen agents. Mm -hmm. Just covered that with these stickers. Anyway, they did over $7,000 in damage. Wow. Traumatized our staff because they were, it was very traumatic for them. Sure, sure. So they end up with 13 felony counts and I think 26 misdemeanor accounts. Oh, okay. The good thing is we have very good surveillance cameras here. We were able to identify a lot of them. So the district attorney did follow up on, or whatever they're called here in El Paso, they followed up on these uh, cases? They were scheduled to go to trial in 2020. COVID happened. They have a new district attorney now, and we haven't heard a word on them. Oh, interesting. It's probably a moot point now. But you haven't had trouble since then? No, we haven't had any okay. trouble That's since good then. To hear. Interesting. We have increased yeah. our security. We have some of the best security systems in place that you could have right now. You mean like when you're closed up, you mean the— Closed and open. We can lock the whole museum down with a flip of a Oh, oh really? Oh, that's interesting. We have a lot of surveillance cameras and— other devices that we have for the security of the staff because the problem when they first demonstrated here is who had responsibility out here because the MPs responded first because this was military police. police. Oh, really? Because this originally was part of Fort Bliss. Oh, okay. And then the Sheriff's Department responded. And then the police, El Paso police. Because you're in the city limits too? We're in the city limits. Right. But we're also outside the city it was a big mess, and now they've finally figured out that the PD will respond, police okay. department. So that's been straightened out. So what about some of the, to move beyond the museum, some of the stuff we're seeing in the news, and I understand this is, the museum itself is non-political, doesn't get involved in this sort of thing. But I mean, what do you think about, for instance, this fake whipping incident, supposedly, the Border Patrol horse officers in Del Rio? I would like to say it's much ado about nothing, but obviously it's blown up into something that probably normally wouldn't even have appeared on 
the national news. Right. From what I saw in the original picture that came out, you can't tell to me what, what is happening. I don't know where that person is trying to grab the reins of the horse and pull him over, pull him over, or what. Subsequent pictures reveal that that wasn't what was happening. Right, right. And it, it is very disturbing to me that the president, the vice president, and the director of DHS would come out and castigate these agents without even knowing the complete facts. Right. And I'm concerned that any investigation into this will be influenced by the comments made by those three. How could it not be? Yeah, of yeah. course. I mean, are you going to go against the president, the vice president, and the director? Because it'll probably be Department of Homeland Security officers, the inspector general, doing the investigation. Right. Who do they report to? Right. So, it, yeah, it concerns me. It, it is, you know, it's just a kind of a microcosm of the whole problem that's been created since the election. Now, you haven't been in Border Patrol for a long time, obviously, but... Since um, 2003, yeah. Right. Do you think morale is worse now among Border Patrol agents? Better? The same? Uh, you know, It's the worst I've ever seen. Really? And, you know, although I'm not in the patrol, being here at the museum, we get Border Patrol agents coming in all the time. Mm-hmm. We work closely with the chief here on various events and other chiefs. And I can tell you that the morale is as bad as I've ever seen it. And I lived through the Carter era right? when you would put eight agents in a van because you didn't have any gas and go to the, to the border. I've never seen it this bad. And to give you an example, we sell retirement badges for agents when they get ready to retire. We had an order for 183 retirement badges. Wow. From one from one place from San Diego. Sector. Wow, wow. So, so people are retiring in droves. In basically. droves. Interesting. That's the way it appears. Yes. Wow, that's amazing. And the sad thing is, you're losing a lot of experience. Right. I mean, Board Joe's trying to to get these people through the academy, but you've got to have leaders that and agents that know what they're doing to teach these young right. agents. And one of the problems I've heard, and this happens in police departments as well when there's like this push to hire new agents, as you know, you could see maybe in a few years from now, there'll be a push and Congress says, okay, well, we need to hire whatever, 5,000 new agents or something. Well, it doesn't just happen overnight. I mean, uh, no. because if you have these numerical quotas to meet, sometimes you end up cutting corners and taking people that maybe probably aren't really all that well suited for law enforcement. And then you have trouble down the line, potentially. You know, we found that out. I can't remember whether it's under Bush or when we started the expedited hiring. Mm-hmm. And we relaxed some of our rules and background checks, and, mm-hmm. and it came back to bite us. Now they're trying very hard to get away from that. They've changed the academy now to 171 day. Instead academy. of what? Was it shorter before? Yeah, it was shorter okay. before. Uh-huh. It's, it's gone more based on actual things that happened in the field. They still teach law, Spanish, and, and the other things that you need. But it's more scenario-based. Oh, interesting. Okay. The problem right now at the academy, because I'm mentoring a class there as a senior mentor. And the academy's out in New Mexico a few hours from here? Artesia, New Mexico, about three hours from here. Mm -hmm. My class, the 1180 that I'm mentoring, is confined to base for 171 days because of COVID. Okay. They can't see their families. They can't leave the base. That's got to be really tough. Yeah. And then I heard that they're not going to have enough people to start filling classes because of the vaccination mandate. Oh, interesting. So Why people won't get the vaccine, you mean? People are turning it down? Well, a lot of these guys are young folks, and priority wasn't toward the young people. Right. 
and they've sent people home that showed up without the vaccine and you've got to get vaccinated. Interesting. So that's going to be a problem because we're losing a lot. We need to start hiring a lot too. Right, right, exactly. So it's going to impact hiring for a while. Where do most of the new agents come from? I mean, are they military? Do they do a tour or two in service and then look at the border patrol? Or are they from other law enforcement, police departments maybe, and they want to ride horses instead? I think all of the above. When I went to meet this class that I'm mentoring, I think there were out of about 28 of them, I think probably a fourth of them were military. Okay. We had probably five females maybe. Mm -hmm. And the rest of them were just young kids that come from a variety of different law enforcement, some out of college, some sons and daughters of former border patrolmen. So kind of a different makeup. I'm assuming Mexican-Americans make up a good-sized chunk of that because Spanish is one of the requirements. You have to be able to yeah, – you can't graduate until you know Spanish. Well I think the breakdown now is I think 54% of the board patrol is Hispanic now. That's overall now, Overall right? now. Okay. Yep. In this class, I think maybe half were Hispanic because one of the things that they've changed – I mean, you have to know Spanish. And like I told these guys, it could save your life So you need and yeah. your partner's life if you know Spanish. And what they've done, they've taken the native speakers, the Hispanic agents that speak Spanish or, or gringos that speak Spanish, and paired them with someone who doesn't speak Spanish. Oh, I see. Well, that so makes, it helps, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. helps them throughout their time there to learn Spanish. So we're going to wrap up here in a couple of minutes. But one thing I was wondering is, from the perspective of a Border Patrol agent, are there like one or two or three things in policy that should be changed? in immigration or border control policy that would make the job of border patrol agents easier? I think the biggest is go back to the way we should be doing it. Arrest these people. Rather than just letting them go. That's the biggest morale. But if you arrest somebody now, you do a short processing thing and out the door he goes or she goes. Right. And that's not the way we were trained. Mm -hmm. That's not the enforcing the law that we were trained to enforce. Right. And it is about the law. I don't care what they say. And the other thing is, this is not a normal thing that, like, the DHS director said, oh, this is just normal. No. It's, what we're seeing now, you mean the surge at the, the border? The surge. Yeah. It's never been like that. Right. Yeah, in the spring, you get a surge of the people going to work in the farms. In Christmas, you get a surge of them going back south. Right. After Christmas in January, you get a surge of going back to work. But nothing like this. Mm -hmm. This is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Right. So just the last thing on the museum, what's the website again for people who are interested? It's borbetrovemuseum.com. And if you're in El Paso, you can come, come and visit us. it. You have yeah. a gift shop and actually people can order things online too, right? Yes. Or, um, and we, we do take donations. So okay. and they're and tax they're, free. And they're tax deductible and because you're a 501c3. Well, yeah. David Ham, president of the Border Patrol Museum, National Border Patrol Museum here in El Paso. Appreciate your uh, giving us this time. And... I hope I'll get out here at some point in the future and come and visit it again, see if you've expanded it anymore. Mark, thank you, and, and I appreciate the work that you and your foundation does. It brings real light and truth to what the situation is, and we appreciate that. Thank you. Finally, I wanted to talk about something that doesn't have anything to do with the border, but this week, Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas announced an end to all worksite enforcement initiatives, specifically the large-scale raids on employers. He talked about the importance 
of enforcing immigration laws at the work site, the memo that he released this week says, just to quote one sentence, our worksite enforcement efforts can have a significant impact on the well-being of individuals and the fairness of the labor market, unquote. Bravo, very true. Unfortunately, what the secretary has decreed is that, in the words of the memo, cease mass worksite operations. And the point here that he's trying to make is that a large-scale raid on employers, you know, multiple factories, for instance, where you round up all the illegal immigrants because of some kind of intel you got from an inside source, that that's a waste of resources. Well, if that's all there were to it, he would be making a good point. Because if all you're doing is raiding a work site and then everybody runs away, the illegals maybe get deported, maybe not, And the ones who get away just go and work at a place down the street and the factory then, you know, in a couple of weeks just has new illegal workers. That's not an efficient way of enforcing immigration law. If that's all that were at issue, then Secretary Mayorkas would be right. But he's not. Because worksite raids of the kind the secretary has banned are an essential part of the kind of strategic enforcement against employers that he professes to be in favor of. The poster child, maybe the best example of that, is a number of years ago, there was a meat packer in Iowa, and it was a kosher meat packer that had repeatedly been violating all kinds of rules, immigration rules, but also child labor, wage and hour, safety, you name it. But nobody, not the feds, not the state authorities, had been able to get evidence to go after the employer. They hadn't been able to get anybody on the inside. But this was toward the end of the Bush administration, if I remember correctly. There was a large-scale raid, an immigration raid by ICE, arrested a whole bunch of illegal immigrants. Only when they did that, were they able to crack open that case? And the illegal immigrants were induced to turn on their crooked employers because they had charges pending against them. They had committed identity theft, identity fraud, tax fraud, all kinds of federal felonies. And essentially what prosecutors said is, look, you can walk on all of this if you provide evidence for us to go after the people higher up the chain. Same as in a drug dealing operation. Uh, You know, you need to arrest the ordinary folks on the street because that's the first step to working up the chain to getting to people higher up in the organization. It's the same thing with illegal employment. And in fact, the Fed succeeded in getting a jail time for a bunch of the managers and even the top guy who was actually running the place. So this week's memo is really more a political sop to the anti-enforcement side rather than an effort to do worksite enforcement better. In the words of the title of the memo, worksite enforcement, the strategy to protect the American labor market the conditions of the American worksite, and the dignity of the individual. That's the name of the memo. In fact, 
What it is is how do we end worksite enforcement? This is simply going to be an inducement to more illegal immigration down the road, just like the disaster at the border. You have to enforce the border at the border, but also inside the country, mainly at the work site, but generally speaking in interior enforcement. And what this represents is a further retreat from the very idea of enforcing immigration laws inside the country, just as this administration has retreated from the idea of enforcing immigration laws at the border itself. This is Mark Krikorian. Thanks for tuning in to Parsing Immigration Policy. If you subscribe to a feed on one of the podcast services that allows comments, we'd be delighted if you gave us a positive review. If you don't like the show, uh, don't leave any review at all. And I hope you join us next week. Thank you.